Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's very pleasing to be able to introduce this podcast, where we will be discussing the paper Development of a Performance of the Upper Limb Module for Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy by May Hugh and her colleagues on behalf of the Performance of the Upper Limb Working Group. It's going to be in the November 2013 issue of the journal. It will be discussed by Dr. Anna Mayhew, who is Consultant Research Physiotherapist at the Institute of Genetic Medicine, University of Newcastle, United Kingdom, who is the first author, and Professor Andrea Bielasikowski, who is Deputy Head of the Learning and Teaching Department in the School of Rehabilitation Sciences, Griffiths University, Queensland, Australia. Anna, please can we start with you to outline the paper and its background? Yes, so this paper very much came out of the clinical need for a clinician reported outcome measure to measure upper limb performance in boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And this was important to us because a lot of focus and time had been spent on measuring change and performance in ambulatory boys. But as we know with the progression of this disease, there becomes a non-ambulatory phase and we had no good tool to measure what was important to these boys and young men as the disease progressed. So this paper was born out of that need really and a review of the literature showed us that there was a, a real paucity of suitable functional scales for use with these young men. But there were items in some of the existing scales that we felt could be of use, but that other areas, particularly the higher functioning part of the arm around the shoulder, was not well captured within existing scales. So a group of experts, mainly physiotherapists, but other clinicians as well, and representatives from patient groups, came together through a series of several workshops to look at existing measures, discuss these, what what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were, and the workshops also included invitations to young men to come, and we practically tried out different items on them, looked at a range of movement, manual muscle testing, myometry, a whole range of things, really to assess the usefulness and applicability of existing items, and also to just experiment, if you like, with, with novel items. So it was through a kind of an iterative process of examining what we had, pulling together what was good, adding additional items that we came up with this draft pro forma for our performance of upper limb scale. And this paper presents both that process and the subsequent preliminary analysis on the suitability of those items to measure uh, motor performance in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So Anna, um, the paper which I recently read, and congratulations on your work, covers a huge amount of time and effort that's been put in by yourself and the research team, which cannot be conveyed in a journal article. So I'm just wondering whether you can answer some of these questions in a little bit more detail to give a little bit more perspective and understanding on some of the methodology that was used in this study. So when you identified that there was a need to be able to measure upper limb performance in people with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and that possibly there were no suitable outcome measures presently available, 
What were your principles that underpinned the development of this new outcome measure? So it's our belief that you need disease and stage-specific outcome measures, and they must reflect the underlying construct that you're trying to measure. And we clearly here felt that we wanted to measure performance of the upper limb, not just distal function, not just shoulder function, not complicating it with anything else. We need to be measuring one thing here. And Duchenne muscular dystrophy has quite a clear clinical progression and changes in upper limb performance occur before boys become non-ambulatory, so whilst they're still on their feet. And that is evident in a loss of ability to reach high above their head with both arms at the same time, clearly, as measured on something as simple as the Brook scale. And, and that is evident and wasn't really being captured in anything but the Brook, which is a simple linear scale. There's a clear progression in these boys. And so we knew that that occurred. And there are scales out there that try and capture certain aspects of upper limb function. So, for instance, the ability to feed themselves and get their hands to the mouth is reflected in such measures as the Egan classification scale, which is a patient-reported outcome measure. There are some very nice um, bilateral items within the French motor function measure. But because some of those scales, such as the MSM, are quite broad and generalized scales for neuromuscular conditions, we felt that the scoring within those items didn't necessarily reflect the progression that you might see in Duchenne. So it was a matter of taking, and, and many of the clinicians in this working group are familiar with a wide range of different scales, and we use those in our clinical course, and they've been perhaps been used in clinical trials because there was nothing else that was suitable. And that's particularly true of the Jebson test because it includes time tests, which regulatory authorities and pharmaceutical companies like, but it was never designed for use in neuromuscular, let alone Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and we weren't sure how applicable it was to the progression of that disease. So it was really that which brought those items together and also really direct discussion with patient groups, families and the boys themselves about what mattered in terms of change and it was evident that there was nothing cohesive out there that measured what we wanted it to. So you um, went through a, quite a detailed research process to be able to develop the draft version of your new outcome measure. But one of the first things that you did was that you identified possible outcome measures that could be in this patient group, such as the Jepson-Taylor hand function test, which you've previously mentioned, and the motor function measure, as well as the Brooks scale. I'm wondering whether you could explain how you conducted your feasibility study on these outcome measures to determine whether they are possible to use in this population group. Yeah, so it was two-pronged really. A systematic review, looking at literature available, um, published data on reliability, its use in any neuromuscular disease, but particularly Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and then a very practical application of those tests. So on boys to actually see how they were working and that was conducted at several sites so you'll see from the publication list there's a large group of us here and there were centres in Italy and in Belgium and America and the UK that all trialled 
some or all of the existing measures to see how they were working. And then it was really a gathering of the experts to discuss those findings and in light of the available literature that kind of helped us move forward from there. So what were your major findings? That there were useful items within existing scales, but none of the existing scales captured the range of what we wanted that we felt was the clear clinical progression of upper limb performance in Duchenne boys, but that there were items within many of the scales that could be useful in capturing that change. Some of the scoring would need adapting. We were unsure, perhaps, on some of the clear clinical progression on some of those items within boys. So some items were included in this draft proforma on an exploratory level to see how they functioned. So we didn't want to get rid of items that could potentially be useful. You don't want to throw away the baby with the bathwater, if you like. Mm. So some items stayed, even though we were unsure of how useful they were. So you gathered some items that were potentially useful from those three outcome measures. Did you use any other sources to include items in your draft version of this new outcome measure? How do you mean other sources? So you had some items from the jetson taylor hand function test, the motor function measure, as well as the Brook outcome measure. And so obviously there were some items there that were not suitable and some that could be potentially useful. Mm -hmm. But were there any other items that were gathered from anywhere else that were used to pilot? So the SMA upper limb module scale, which was developed by Eleanor Mazzoni in Italy, proved quite useful to us because it captured some items that weren't captured within other scales that we felt were useful. And there had been some work on an adapted Jebson, which was about stacking cans, so looking at the height to which boys could reach up to head level that had been used in some earlier Duchenne trials, which we felt were worthwhile including because there were a lack of items that looked at the higher level of ability. One of the issues for us was really the standardization of equipment and this is one of the problems with any upper limb scale because it is about fine motor manipulation and you need kit for that and so there was a lot of discussion about making sure that this scale didn't need too much equipment that we would be able to standardize that equipment and that is something that proved quite difficult but that's why we went for using small weights to if you like load patients in terms of their ability to lift weights, and that was particularly to do with the high end, so where a boy is reaching forward to shoulder and above shoulder height and reaching out to the side to shoulder height and above height. So that was one area that particularly wasn't captured by other scales and we felt had particular important clinically relevant uh, meaningfulness to include. And that's a very important point to make, that you really tried to find items that cover the full scope of ability in um, people with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and with other outcome measures in other conditions that's certainly been identified as an issue in the past and that often the items only capture one part of the range of ability so whether it's the lower end or the upper end rather than the full scope so it's fantastic that um, you identified potential items initially that cover the full scope and then further refined them.
My next question revolves around how you actually refined the items and how you actually came up with a scoring system as well. Yes, I think this was interesting because I've worked on several other scales before and scales tend to like things to be uniform and tidy. So if you have a scale, uh, people like every item to score 0, 1 and 2 or 0 to 5 or 1 to 7 or whatever. They like everything to kind of match up. And I don't know why that is because that may not necessarily be clinically meaningful difference between a score naught and a one and a one and a two. You know, in, sometimes I think to make things look tidy, artificial distinctions are perhaps inserted just so everything measures on exactly the same scale. So I made it clear before we started that from a measurement perspective, that did not need to be the case for this scale, that we could have one item that scored on a naught, one and a two, and another item that had a more complex scoring system, if we felt that the changes in scores were important for that item. And that's because the, the total score doesn't reflect anything until we know that we're measuring one thing, if you like. And that's something that rationalysis has brought to my understanding of the development of clinical scales. So when it came to looking at the scoring individual items, I really gave and as a team, we discussed that there was some freedom in, in how we defined important changes from item to item. So that was done through a combination of looking at how a boy did something. And we tried, when we tried items on individuals, we tried to make sure we had a range of uh, boys who were still ambulant, but who had some upper limb symptoms from very, very weak boys whose movement was very much surrounding just finger movement. So we tried to, to cover the range there. And so deciding on the scoring really depended on, A, what we saw clinically, what we felt the progression was, and a combination of those things, as well as kind of looking back at how they'd been working within their original scale, perhaps. So we certainly made use and are very grateful to all the other scales that exist out there that kind of gave us hints as to how to move this forward. But it was the input from the parent groups and the boys themselves that helped us really sometimes decide whether to keep an item or not. So I think we can attach good clinical meaning to all the current items within our pool. So, you know, the ability to lift light cans on a table is all about reaching across the table to get something, whether that's for a boy at school or at home at the dining table. The ability to supinate, to turn your palm upward, is important for boys when it comes to, to handling money, for instance. So we felt that each item within there reflected clinical meaning, and our hope was that the scoring that, that we applied in the draft would pick up distinct and clear clinical progression of the disease. We probably erred on having too many categories within each item because sometimes we weren't sure if they suggested a clear clinical progression or if they were just different strategies when a boy is weak. And that is something that you'll see other scales struggling with. So does a boy use a particular method because he is more weak than another boy or is it just two different strategies because there is some weakness, for instance, in the elbow flexors. So it's a complex area and we were learning all the time, but I think the combination of our 
clinical expertise, the input from the families, and making sure that we referred to any publications or other information on scales meant that that kind of kept us in the right direction. And certainly you've touched on something that's particularly important for upper limb outcome measurement is the use of compensatory mechanisms. So sometimes, as you mentioned, when someone is performing a task, they may be able to still undertake that task, but the way that they perform it is in a completely different way, which enables that performance but might not be considered a typical movement pattern. Yeah. Is that addressed in this outcome measure or was it taken into consideration? Yeah, definitely, because it takes, for instance, being able to feed yourself. And that, of course, is highly important and highly relevant. And when a boy is no longer able to do that, that has major implications for any family. So we know that the boy can can take his hand to his mouth without any elbow support. That suggests good function. But as his weakness progresses, then he can have different strategies to still achieve that ability to self-feed. So he can use one hand to support the other. He can use a two-handed mechanism. He can rest his elbows on the table and lean forward. Does that reflect a progression or is that just different strategies? And the beauty of the rash analysis is it allows you to explore whether you have picked up a clinical progression or not with your scoring system and enables you to see the impact perhaps of collapsing your complex scoring system to something more simple to see if that better captures progression. And that is why we did the exploratory rash analysis at the end of all our deliberations as experts to see A, how those items were working together as a cohesive scale and to look at the scoring hierarchy within the different items. Certainly rash analysis has been used a lot more over the last decade in outcome measurement development uh, compared to classical test theory. Are there any other advantages of using rash analysis, do you think, in this type of scale development? I think very much so because classical test theory, a lot of it is surrounding reliability and validity. And of course you can have good reliability without actually know that you're measuring one thing or not. And so RASH enables you to look at the cohesiveness of your items to measure the underlying construct. It allows you to look to see if the scoring within each item actually clearly reflects clinical progression. It delivers a reliability measure. It enables you to look for differences in the way a boy scores on a scale depending perhaps on uh, whether he's ambulant or not, whether he is on a different steroid regime. So it allows a much greater in-depth examination of your scale to show that it's really measuring the right thing. And, and I'm sure you'll be familiar with scales that claim high reliability and validity, but when you look at them, you're not quite sure where all of those items came from. I mean, rash analysis is, is a tool. And as any tool, it can be wielded in the, in the wrong way. And the usefulness of rash analysis is to clinicians. So in the clinician's hands, it is a very useful tool because the information that the rash analysis gives you 
has to be viewed in light of your clinical understanding of the disease. So before you start deleting items or collapsing the scoring on items, the clinicians have to confirm that those are clinically sensible things to do. And that is a very important part of this iterative process and something that we were very conscious of when we were developing the pool. And rash analysis also helps you to develop your scoring system, I would imagine, as well. Yes, yes. And really within the scope of this paper, it was an exploratory rash analysis just to confirm that we were on the right lines. And in that analysis, I think we found that we were on the right lines and it isn't fully reported within this paper because it's kind of a paper within itself. But there will now be ongoing analysis of a larger data set to confirm the initial findings of that exploratory rash analysis. Mm. Because really, before you start making major changes to any scale, you really need to examine it in a larger number of assessments. I'd like to go back to a comment that you made about the involvement of boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and also their parents in developing this scale. Traditionally, when you look at outcome measurement development, the items have been based mainly on clinician opinion or solely on items contained in other scales. Can you please discuss the benefits of actually involving your target population and their carers in the development of this outcome measure? Yeah, I mean, it it really is an essential part, I think, to any new scale development, particularly in in light of the fact that one of the reasons that we're putting this scale together, but not the sole reason, but one of the reasons is because clinical trials may well start targeting the non-ambulant Duchenne population, and currently there were no scales fully developed. So from a regulatory point of view, it is essential these days for the scale that you include to have clinical meaning attached to it. And how else do you attach clinical meaning to something mm. unless you discuss that with the, the boys and young men and their families and the, the patient groups? So that was important. And I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it does bring up the fact that parallel to the development of this performance of upper limb scale, there was a similar group working on a patient-reported outcome measure for the upper limb. Mm. And it's not as far on as the, the, the pull scale is, but it has been developed in conjunction with. So what was nice about that was that, that the items within the pull can then be reflected in a related prong. And patient-reported outcome measures are highly approved of by regulatory authorities. Mm if they're robust and sufficient enough. And, of course, you you can take that a step further and you can use techniques um, such as the RASH analysis to actually relate the score on one scale to the score on another scale. So uh, one can be used as a surrogate for the other if if they are both trying to measure the same thing. You can understand how their scores relate to one another. Well, that's really important to know because you can get two different perspectives often with patients reporting one thing and then when you observe their performance, it might actually be completely different. 
Yes. So having a patient reported um, outcome measure and observation of performance, the items that are similar across the two would be an ideal way to be able to explore the relationship between actual performance and perceived capacity, I suppose. Yeah, and I mean, there will be differences. Like you say, you know, with, a, with something such as the pool, you have fairly strict starting positions and you know, strict criteria for scoring. So from the perspective of their score on the pull in terms of ability to bring their hand to their mouth, they may not be able to score sufficiently to, to say that they're able to do that on the pull, but of course they may still be able to self-feed at home because they use some fantastic strategy that, um, that involves them resting their elbow on a table to the side of them or whatever, you know. So mm-hmm. I think it is important to have the two running parallel. And as you say, they can certainly reflect each other but actually what goes on at home and whether any intervention affects the ability of a boy to be independent for instance then that is that is a very important point to make and with discussion um, with the boys and their families were there any surprising or interesting things that actually changed or modified your view on this research yeah, I mean, we had a very big discussion around access to technology, and that is a very important point for these young men, their ability to use a phone, not only to dial a number, but to actually bring it up to their ear. It's a combination of, you know, more than one activity that gives them privacy, to be able to speak without everybody here, you know, those kind of things. Mm. Of course, it's very difficult when it comes to technology, A, to standardise that technology. We wanted to reflect the ability to kind of touch numbers, say, on a keypad, but we can't standardise technology. And because we wanted the pool to be available on an international level, you can't assume that everybody has access to technology. So we hoped that some of the items within the scale would reflect that ability without actually assuming access or the same type of phone, for instance, to, to all of the boys. So that was, it was complicated around that. I think it's also interesting the difficulty when a scale is trying to take into account adaptive technology to assist individuals. And there was a lot of discussion around that and, of course, the influence on the ability of boys to perform tasks, whether their house or home is is fully adapted or not. And, of course, that's probably more relevant to a patient-reported outcome measure, but it becomes very difficult to truly reflect progression when different countries perhaps have different access to adaptive technologies to allow boys to remain independent. That's true. Well, with your paper, I understand that this is just the beginning of the research that needs to be undertaken with new outcome measures. My final question is, so where are you going with your research now in this area? So first of all, we have already and are busy still collecting additional information on our current pool. The pull is also being used uh, as an exploratory measure in some clinical trials, and this mm-hmm. has further challenged us to standardise the equipment within the, the test, which is much more complicated than we thought, so that's been very complex. Trying to find light and heavy cans around the world is not as easy as you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're, we're moving in the right direction in terms of standardising our equipment. 
we're collecting more data and that will lead to further rationalysis. I've done an interim analysis on a larger data set of more than 300 boys um, already and the plan is to reflect that in a more international way on an even larger data set and then hopefully make some definitive changes to the pool so we can come up with a finalized version that will be sufficiently robust to be considered a measurement instrument and therefore can go down the same road that we've done with the North Star ambulatory assessment and actually to create a linearized measurement that will make the change in scores more meaningful within any clinical trial. I think that's really important to mention about the scores and the meaningfulness of them. Since this measure is being used in clinical trials as well, I guess it would be really important to have some kind of evidence of its ability to detect change over time. Yes, definitely, and that would certainly be one of the future steps. Once we have our finalised version where all the scoring actually meaningfully reflects progression, then we can begin to look at responsiveness of the pool to intervention. We can begin to look at a minimal important difference and to see if this is reflected in clinically meaningful difference for boys and young men at home with their families. Well, this certainly is a very exciting area and it also takes a lot of time and effort, a lot of thinking to be able to develop outcome measures. A lot of people are not au fait with the methodology that needs to be used and a lot more time-consuming and a lot harder than what people um, generally think. And I congratulate you with your paper that's um, published in Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology and look forward to reading more about this new outcome measure in other articles. Thank you for your time, Anna. Thank you. Well, thank you very much as well. We've come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Dr. Mayhew and Professor Bilosowski for a very interesting discussion on a clearly important issue of great relevance. It's very exciting that we've got to the stage of wanting outcome measures for conditions that have not previously been thought very treatable. Just to remind everyone who's listening that the article is Development of a Performance of Upper Limb Module for Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy by Mayhew et al. in the November 2013 issue.